Welcome to Middle East PolicyCast for July 2nd, 2021, from the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Institute. The Middle East contains, or borders on, many regions. North Africa, the Levant, the Gulf States, Turkey, the Caucasus, Iran, Central Asia. But one emerging region deserves special attention from American policymakers, argues Institute scholar Elena Delusier. The Red Sea is home both to populous, increasingly prosperous populations and to centuries-old global trade routes, offering risks and rewards for America's security and economy. So when you talk about the risks in the Red Sea, that's the big one. The reason that people really think about that is because there are so many threats to the shipping lanes, because there is a war in Yemen, there's instability in Somalia, there's a terrorist group in Somalia. There's rivalry and war, you know, across the water in Tigray that I mentioned before. There's a series of islands in the Red Sea that that are, you know, have been contested at various points in time. There's migration and refugees and drug trafficking and human trafficking. I could go on and on with just lists of things that sort of happen across these waterways that make people very nervous. We'll hear more from Elena, including analysis of Russian and Chinese strategy in the Red Sea, and detailed policy recommendations for Washington after this. This is Rob Satloff, Executive Director of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting those policies that secure them. Find all our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute. I am speaking today with Elena Delosier, the Rubin Family Fellow at the Washington Institute, where she specializes in Yemen, the Gulf States, and nuclear weapons and proliferation. She's the author of an Institute Presidential Transition Study on U.S. policy options in the emerging Red Sea region. Elena, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Elena, when last we spoke, you described the economic and strategic bases for considering the states on the Red Sea littoral. Egypt, Israel, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Somalia, Djibouti, Eritrea, and Sudan as a distinct and emerging region. But it's been a minute since that conversation. So to start, what's the elevator pitch reasoning for American policymakers to treat the Red Sea as a distinct region? So there's a couple of reasons why I argued that the U.S. government should think of the Red Sea as sort of its own emerging region or neighborhood. One of them is that the area has fast rising economic potential. There's uh, large populations and high GDP growth. So if you combine those things, if you have a rising economy and that economy is rising for a lot of people, then that is good overall and, and means that there's markets that might soon come available. Um, and so to give one example, Ethiopia is a population of some 100 million people. So if that country is able to boom economically, that's good for the whole world, for anyone that does business, not only to export to that market, but also for that market to uh, export its own products to the rest of the world. So there's fast rising economic potential. Uh, this area of the world is a key node for future global trade. It's along the Red Sea, which is one of the sort of main arteries of economic trade. And it's one of the links on China's Belt and Road Initiative. It is also an area that has importance on the food and water security 
uh, arena for the Gulf states. They they are very concerned about food and water security, and they can um, they can rely on this part of the world to uh, assuage some of those concerns. But if that's the good news story, this part of the world is also beset with a lot of problems. You have the Houthi rebels in Yemen. The Al-Shabaab is a terrorist group in Somalia. And then we've been hearing the news a lot lately about the conflict in Tigray, uh, which is is on the, the African side of the Red Sea. And so there's also a lot of political fragility. Uh, and so the United States really needs to, you know, focus on this particular region and hasn't yet totally internalized this, this part of the world as a region of itself, because we still tend to think of Africa on the left and, or on the west and, uh, and the Gulf on, on the east. What are the powers beyond the immediate Red Sea shoreline who seek to gain either strategic or economic influence within the Red Sea region? And and what are the goals of each one? So there's a number of countries who are interested in the Red Sea. So you went through the list of the countries that are called the literal states or or the coastal states, essentially, and there's nine of them. Uh, but then outside of the nine countries that literally sit on the edges of the Red Sea, there's a number of regional and global actors, really. So the regional actors, I would say, are Turkey, Iran, Qatar, the United Arab Emirates, and the external powers are countries like Russia, China, even the EU, the UK. And so all of these countries in the world, the ones who literally make up the neighborhood, but also basically every important power otherwise has some sort of interest in this area. And the interests are, you know, they differ a little bit. So uh, for China, they have a lot of um, investment in the on the African side of the Red Sea. For the European Union, they're quite worried about issues like migration. Uh, Turkey sees this area of the world as sort of uh, a former, you know, parts of it were part of the, the Ottoman Empire. So they sort of see a sphere of influence. Uh, Iran is interested in the Red Sea in part because they're interested in waterways in general, as are as are most countries. Uh, but they've they've got some some interests uh, on on both sides of the the Arabian Peninsula, and so every country sort of has its own reasons. I mentioned the food security uh, for the for the Gulf states, and so it actually is a really interesting part of the world because there are so many countries that are involved and every single one of them has different reasons and priorities for being there. So in the transition paper that you mentioned that I wrote, I wrote about 18 different countries. I mean, that's, and that was me cutting the list back to only the core sort of countries that really are interested in these areas. And again, this is a reason why the United States needs to really pay attention. Well, chief among nations that the United States would see or, or, or most U.S. policymakers see as uh, major partners or potential adversaries of the United States, um, most of them, according to your report, are in some way or another hands-on in the Red Sea. So just starting with China, you mentioned that the, the, the Chinese involvement in the Red Sea is uh, intensive and deliberate, but it's, from our point of view, primarily economic to find as part of China's Belt and Road Initiative. What, is, what does that mean uh, for what China is attempting to actually do in the Red Sea? So China's Belt and Road Initiative, you're right that, so, so 
you're right that it goes through up through the Red Sea and that that's a core part of why they're interested in this area. I just want to caveat that it isn't the only reason. China has mm-hmm. opened an overseas base in Djibouti, a uh, military base. And so um, there's obviously some sort of interest on that side of things too. But I think that you're right that for now it's primarily uh, economic. And so one of the things that China is doing is um, investing in a lot of the African countries and specifically with regard to infrastructure. And so if, you know, we go back to that example of Ethiopia, if Ethiopia were to become a major world, you know, market with 100 million people, which is a third, of course, the size of the United States, uh, then they need roads and transport networks to get the stuff either into Ethiopia or out of Ethiopia. Uh, And so there's port infrastructure and road infrastructure and train infrastructure. And those are the kinds of things that China and also Turkey and some other countries are are investing in uh, on the African side of the Red Sea. And that's what the Belt and Road Initiative is really all about, is to build the infrastructure so that the sort of rising or emerging markets of the world can can get their stuff to market uh, or China can get their goods to those markets at the point at which mm-hmm. um, those markets are ready to buy them. Well, and, and then turning to the other nation that, that most Americans would, would tend to think of in, in adversarial, major power adversarial terms, we have Russia. And historically, the Soviet Union in its, its later days, as you write, had a presence in the Red Sea in Aden, in Yemen, uh, Nakura Island, which is now part of Eritrea, in, and in Somaliland. So what is Russia's goal with its relationship with the uh, the states of the Red Sea? Yeah, so Russia's interest in the region uh, is in part economic as well. I mean, for most of these countries, the answer is economic. I mean, Russia exports uh, a bunch of its oil uh, and other goods as well, and it goes down through the the Red Sea. Uh, and in fact, the numbers on that are are pretty high in terms of um, how much of the traffic is Russian. And so, I, you know, part of it is just purely economics, and every country in the world wants to just secure their waterways, secure their access to to open waterways. And so part of it is just simply that. And in in part, um, explaining the Red Sea is really just explaining that concept, that this is a major waterway that carries a large percentage of world trade. And so every major country that's part of the major world economy wants to be on the Red Sea. Now, what's interesting about Russia is that they uh, are looking to open bases in various countries along the Red Sea, and some of that, uh, some of those attempts are are getting blocked. Uh, and so we'll have to kind of see what happens with that. But I think similar to I, Russia and China are not exactly similar in in many ways, but similar to many of the other countries in you know fighting for access in in the Red Sea, everybody wants a foothold. So China has its foothold in Djibouti. Mm-hmm. A bunch of countries have a foothold in Djibouti, um, and Russia's looking for its foothold as well. So, does the United States have a primary strategic rival in the Red Sea region? The Red Sea neighborhood has a bunch of rivalries. Uh, as soon as you involve major countries like China, Turkey, Russia, there's bound to be rivalries. And so there's rivalries between some of the Gulf states in Turkey. There's rivalries with Qatar. There, Iran is present in the Red Sea in certain ways, which creates a lot of consternation. Um, for Washington, for the United States, 
you know, the concept of rivalry in the Red Sea is is a little bit more nuanced because it's not this sort of direct one-on-one kind of rivalry. Many in Washington view Beijing as a rival globally, I mean, just broadly. And so if you were to take that lens and apply it to the Red Sea, you know, maybe you could make an argument that that Beijing and Washington are rivals. And certainly they're they're both investing in Africa. Beijing tends to invest more in infrastructure and those kinds of things that I mentioned before. Washington tends to do more foreign direct investment. Uh, but the countries in, especially on the African side of the Red Sea, but I would also say on the uh, uh, on the, the Gulf side of the Red Sea, see both China and the U.S. as options. Mm. But they also see Turkey and the Gulf states and, you know, maybe occasionally Russia as an option as well. So they don't see them as rivals and we're picking between them, like, you know, similar to the Cold War, how the Cold War was. It's more like we can pick China, we can pick the U.S. or maybe Turkey or maybe, you know, the UAE which one gives us the best deal or which one, and and there's worries about each of them. You know, there's worries about debt trap diplomacy that, you know, over China, there's worries about the U.S. potentially putting certain types of political pressure for things like democracy and that kind of thing. There's worries about the Gulf being just, you know, ATM diplomacy is what it's called. So, so there's, you know, the, the African countries, especially when you talk to their, um, their officials, they say, you know, we've got, we like that we have options, but every option has, you know, upsides and downsides. And so I see it less as a rivalry per se and more as competition. And mm-hmm. I worry a little bit that in the U.S. seeing it as rivalry, that in and of itself can sometimes be an issue. For example, the China-U.S. trade war, those types of things can have ramifications in places like East Africa. And that you know, worries abound that that kind of thing could have kind of detrimental economic effects on them. So no one wants the U.S. to have a rivalry with China. They prefer to see it as competition. And it might be it might be good in some ways for us to see it that way occasionally as well. So how can the United States compete with China and to an extent Turkey as an economic player in the Red Sea region without becoming uh, engaged too much in uh, uh, pure rivalry? Well, you're right that we should totally compete. Uh, And this is something that I heard when I was in the region uh, before COVID quite often, that there's a desire for the United States to really compete. Uh, There's certain things we won't compete on, uh, you know, certain things where maybe the regulatory landscape is a little bit more difficult, our companies aren't as comfortable, that kind of thing. But we can definitely compete on on consumption. So for example, everybody wants an iPhone, right? So Apple can can sell iPhones in these massive markets. Uh, also companies that sell soda, you know, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, that kind of thing. And these are businesses that are called consumer facing American businesses. And I don't in any way mean to endorse any particular business, but just to suggest to give some examples of what consumer facing American businesses are. But that's the way that we can we can compete, uh, you know, right out of the gate. Then there are some longer term things as well. For example, the U.S. government could try to incentivize private sector investment in the Red Sea states. And by the way, this isn't just the the Western African uh, side of the 
Red Sea, but also the eastern side of the Red Sea, mm. which is uh, on the Gulf states. You know, so there's certain things. For example, if uh, one of the Gulf states that was, that's one of our partners in the region wanted to, you know, uh, uh, bid on a contract in, you know, one of the Red Sea states a U.S. company could, you know, be a subcontractor in that contract, things like that. So there's there's all sorts of things that, you know, we could do now. But in the long term, what you really need in this area is stability. So there's all these notions that Saudi Arabia is going to have this booming economy and they want foreign direct investment. And there's going to be all this tourism along the Red Sea. And there's talk of tourism in Egypt along the Red Sea, uh, on the Sinai Peninsula along the Red Sea as well. And, and if we could get, you know, Yemen in shape and Somalia in shape, if we if, if those countries had a little bit more political stability, companies would go to these places. I mean, these are massive populations. Yemen has 30 million people. Saudi has 30 plus million people. Uh, I think Somalia is 15 million. So, these are massive markets for American companies, but they need to feel safe going there. There has mm. to be some level of stability. And so we know Coca-Cola and McDonald's will go pretty much anywhere, but there's other American businesses that that won't and, and that don't have as, as big a global footprint, but could if these places, you know, had had structures in place and had stability. So so it's those are the long-term issues. If 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 everybody pays attention to the region and can find ways to kind of bring security and stability to the region, then that also brings business with it. Turning from the the economic ledger to the strategic question, what are the strategic risks that the United States faces in the Red Sea? Well, the biggest one is any sort of choke point being blocked. So let me explain what I mean by that. I mean, everyone listening to this will remember the recent situation with the Ever Given, the famous mm -hmm. Ever Given incident that, that was a <laughs> boat that was blocking the Suez Canal and nothing could get through and people's Ikea furniture is late. Uh, as a result, and that kind of thing. Um, and so you could you could understand through that situation how how critical choke points are. And that choke point in particular is at the top, at the northern end of the Red Sea. Exactly. So so, you know, there's there's basically three choke points in the Red Sea, uh, two of which are global choke points. Uh, the Suez Canal that you just mentioned where the Ever Given was stuck. And then there's one at the south called the Bab el-Mandeb, which uh, means Gate of Tears in English, uh, which is also, you know, it's not as narrow as the Suez Canal, but it is a pretty narrow choke point. And it's possible that you know, uh, most likely a boat would not get stuck per se, but there could be other things that would block that choke point if, for example, the war in Yemen led to a barrage of missiles being sent into the Red Sea that could stop people from going through. And in fact, already insurance rates for ships are going up because that area of the Red Sea at the southern part of the Red Sea uh, is facing issues of instability. Uh, and so, when ships want to go through that area, their insurance companies charge them more. Um, and so these are the kinds of things that that really matter, the access to open seas. So when you talk about the risks in the Red Sea, that's the big one. And the reason that people really think about that is because there are so many uh, threats to the shipping lanes, because there is you know, uh, instability in Yemen, a war in Yemen, there's instability in Somalia, there's a terrorist group in Somalia, 
There's rivalry and war, you know, across the water in Tigray that I mentioned before. There's a series of islands in the Red Sea that um, that are, you know, have been contested at various points in time. There's migration and refugees and drug trafficking and human trafficking. I could go on and on with just lists of things that sort of happen across these waterways that make people very nervous. And so if a country like America, which has, you know, a global uh, presence in the economy, we need access to the open seas. And so something like the Red Sea becomes very important. And looking at all of those security risks, which could stop that access, therefore becomes very important. So there's the kind of economic growth story, which brings everybody, you know, to the area and sounds very exciting. But then there's all this political fragility and risk that you have to sort of solve for in order to make sure that the the access to open seas, you know, remains <laughs> open. And and for, for over 70 years, most of the world has looked to the United States to maintain uh, freedom of the seas for shipping purposes. Our, our Navy has existed in, in large part to fulfill that mission. And so if something mm-hmm. goes wrong, who's the first place uh, anyone in the world calls? I mean, maybe maybe going forward to some extent, Beijing, but it's the United States. It's Washington that's going to get mm-hmm. that call to help us keep the sea lanes open. So the perceived removal of sort of a U.S. security umbrella, right? So there's this idea that the U.S. is pulling out of the Middle East and that sort of thing. Now, in reality, our military is still very present in the mili- in the Middle East. We have bases in Abu Dhabi and Qatar and other places. Uh, but there's this sort of psychological withdrawal that the United States wants to get out. There's a pivot to Asia, all these kinds of things that have le- led a lot of countries in the region to see the U.S. security umbrella as lifting uh, and that maybe we won't be there. Uh, all the time whenever someone needs us. And so there's a there's a number of regional states, particularly Saudi Arabia and the UAE, who increasingly see Red Sea security as their responsibility. And one of the risks that we have going forward, the United States has going forward, is that, you know, if countries see something as their responsibility, they're going to handle problems in their way. Mm. Uh, and that may not be the way we would have handled the problem. Um, and we may have different priorities than than whatever countries take on these responsibilities. And so on the one hand, it's fantastic when someone takes on a responsibility and you don't have to do it anymore. Um, but on the other hand, that also means that they might do things differently than how you would do them. And so those are the kinds of trade-offs that we have to think about as as we sort of, quote unquote, psychologically withdraw from the region. Well, and on the flip side of strategic risks, what about strategic opportunities for the United States in the Red Sea region? I think that comes back to the economic question, right? If if the region does, in fact, blossom and bloom. So there's there's this idea that especially on the the African side of the Red Sea, if these uh, countries that exist along the, the, the coastlines, but also Ethiopia, which is not on the coast, but just off the coast, uh, if 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 these countries can, you know, come to life and if they can be sort of future economies that are really a a major part of the global economy, you know, that's, that's good for business, which means it's good for American business. And so stabilizing kind of a future economic hub is very important. And I, I think that if there is stability in this region as well, that could go a long way to helping clean up a lot of illicit activity that creates problems in other ways. So, whether it's drug smuggling 
or whether it's weapon smuggling. So there's a lot of weapons that go through the Gulf of Aden, which is uh, which is just uh, just off of the Red Sea and the southern the southern part of the Red Sea. It's sort of the the waterway that leads into the Red Sea. And so there's there's a lot of weapons trafficking that happens in that waterway, which ends up going to all sorts of groups that you know are unsavory characters in the region. And so if you can stabilize the region, then you can you know potentially uh, solve for some of these issues. And so I think that's sort of the the sort of opportunity that the region offers is that there's this growth story, and if we can support the growth story, if we can make sure the growth story can make headway, and that it doesn't get uh, the growth story doesn't get squashed by the political fragility and the security risks then there can be real opportunity in the future uh, for everybody. So I think that's kind of the the idea. One issue you raise in your transition study, the case for a holistic U.S. Red Sea policy, is that the Red Sea area falls between two very distinct American military joint combatant commands. Egypt and the states on the eastern shore of the Red Sea fall within Central Command or, or CENTCOM while Sudan, Djibouti, Eritrea, Somalia, and Ethiopia fall within Africa Command, or AFRICOM. This seam between U.S. military combatant commands complicates both military and diplomatic engagement across the region. So how could the Biden administration overcome this potential barrier? This is a great question. Well, first of all, I think it's important to note you you, uh, you described the military commands very well. And it is a bit funny to sort of have, if you look on a map and have Egypt be a part of the command that seems to be on the eastern side of the Red Sea. Oh, but we include we include Egypt. And the reason for that is the Suez Canal, uh, mm-hmm. which I, we talked about the importance of before. Um, but what's really interesting is the diplomatic and military seams are different. So what you described was the military, what we call seam, like where the line goes, goes down on a map between Africa Command and and Central Command, as you mentioned. But if you look at the State Department and how it divides Africa from what they call Near East, the lines are actually different uh, and and specifically with regard to North Africa. But um, and so this is a an added layer to the question that you're asking. So there's not only a military seam that we need to talk about, but there's also a diplomatic seam. Oh, and by the way, it's a different seam, mm-hmm. at least slightly different. Uh, and so these seams create complications. So for example, uh, there might be a security risk or security threat that originates on the African coast and migrates eastward uh, or you know, originates on the eastern side of the Red Sea and migrates westward. And it becomes confusing as to sort of which command then is responsible for that threat. And so the responsibility can switch from one command to another, and that can oftentimes be very confusing. So this is an example of how the seam can affect American policy in this in this area. And so the, these are just little little examples of where kind of monitoring responsibility in the Red Sea gets tricky because it's literally the scene between two different commands. So it's a little bit of who's 
responsible for what. Uh, And so the way that you can deal with these things, I mean, these are problems no matter what. We could move the seam, for example. And there's some people that would like to do that and move, you know, include part of East Africa in with with Central Command, which it used to be a part of back in the day. Uh, And so there's some people that argue for things like that. But even if you do that, uh, you still have a seam somewhere. And so this yeah. is always going to be an issue. And so a few ways that you can deal with it. Uh, first of all, you can just have good interagency processes. And a lot of that is, you know, the answer. But I think with regard to the Red Sea in particular, given how important the issue is, and given how many things are going on in the Red Sea at once, I think this seam is a particularly tricky one. Uh, And so I recommended the paper that the two assistant secretaries, the one for Africa and then the one for Near East, could go on a tour of the region together. You could have the combatant commanders do the same thing. So the the head of AFRICOM and the head of CENTCOM could travel together as well to both sides of the seam to meet with similar officials just to kind of introduce each other to their territory so that you have a better sort of interagency process. Um, Some of the other ideas that came out of a series of discussions and uh, and came out in our launch event for this paper, actually, one of our speakers said, you know, you could put an Africa watcher in Dubai. In other words, mm-hmm. put an Africa watcher in the Gulf. You could put a Gulf watcher somewhere in, in an embassy, uh, a U.S. embassy in Africa, just to try to cross pollinate a little bit. And um, she also had an idea to add a, a, a tag to cables, you know, maybe for uh, cables that State Department folks send, you could add a tag for Red Sea, right? Because Mm -hmm. one of the really big issues with the Red Sea and and trying to get the Red Sea, quote unquote, right, is that it involves 18 countries and another 18 different, you know, (laughs) issue areas. And so there, there isn't one person who can possibly know the ins and outs of all of those sorts of things. So what are ways that you can just get the U.S. government to just work together better. Uh, and so these were some of the ideas that we came up with. It sounds like you're saying it's it's going to getting the Red Sea right is going to take more than just appointing a special envoy for the Horn of Africa or for even the Red Sea. It's 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 going to require more effort from more agencies than just appointing one czar at some level in some agency. Yeah, that's right. And it's part of the reason that we referred to it as an emerging region, right? Because if you think of the Middle East, let's say, as a region. Would it make sense if we were just now crafting Middle East policy to think, let's just appoint one guy who's in charge of the Middle East, right? right? It doesn't, there isn't, that doesn't, doesn't make sense. It's a whole region. There's multiple countries and there's tons of different issue areas. And some of those issue areas bleed over and some of them are just within one country. And, and it's the same kind of situation. So how do you how do you deal with the Red Sea as a region while also, you know, we already see Africa, parts of Africa as a region, like East Africa as a region, and we see the Middle East as a region. So how do you get this thing that's in between that itself needs to be understood as a region? Uh, and and just to add one thought as to why, uh, you know, the the Red Sea has always been pretty easy to cross. It's a pretty narrow waterway overall. Mm -hmm. And so the countries in the West and East of the Red Sea have interacted with each other for centuries. And so for them, that quote unquote seam doesn't really exist. 
For us, it exists in our bureaucracy. So it's how do you make sure that our bureaucratic seam doesn't sort of get in the way of understanding the reality on the ground, which is the 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 Red Sea states all interact with each other all the time. Uh, and so so those are the kinds of things that we have to think about. Well, and on that note, in, in your report, you warned that a chief danger for the Red Sea region is bilateral friction among the states in the Red Sea. So assuming that we're getting our, our bureaucracy in order and uh, giving ourselves the proper tools to deal with and understand and relate to the Red Sea properly, what can Washington do to help its Red Sea partners cooperate or at least to avoid strategically destructive or economically inefficient conflicts? So in this part of the region, there are bilateral relationships between most of the states that we've talked about. Uh, and so every single one of those relationships is different. And of course, a number of them have friction. You know, just like any set of countries that border each other oftentimes have friction, there is there is friction uh, in on on both sides of the um, uh, of the Red Sea. And so there's a series of multilateral institutions that are starting to come up because again, a lot of the the countries in the world and the Red Sea states themselves are starting to see this area as an area in and of itself. And so they're mm -hmm. trying to figure out how to manage themselves, right? And so the the Saudis uh, uh, about a year ago created this Red Sea Council that includes all the states on the Red Sea uh, coast except Israel, which is a a separate issue as to why they're not included. Uh, but, you know, there there's there's an organization on the African side called EGAD, uh, which is meant to to try to bring some of these states together. And so there are some multilateral efforts. Um, but a lot of the countries that are part of the Red Sea literal are you know, these are Yemen and Somalia and Eritrea. These are states that are undergoing either war or transition or political fragility. I mean, Sudan is another example. And so, you know, it's a difficult, it's a difficult situation, but I think the U.S. needs to support both bilateral relationships because those are absolutely necessary, especially with regard to port access. So for example, mm -hmm. if, if Ethiopia's economy ever get, you know, it, it right now, Ethiopia's economy relies on Djibouti's port, but if it ever really booms, like everyone thinks it will, at some point it will need access to more ports, which means it will need to have good bilateral relationships with the countries that give it access to ports. Um, but multilateral relationships are important as well so that you can sort of have security arrangements and you can have an understanding of nothing else. And so the U.S. really needs to, um, you know, can play an active role in helping resolve rifts whenever they come up, uh, or at a minimum, ensure that these rifts don't adversely affect the, the security of the Red Sea. So even rifts that have nothing to do with the Red Sea. So we know the UAE and Qatar, for example, had a rift, and that really affected Somalia in some negative ways. And the U.S. spent a lot of time trying to avoid that happening. And so these are the kinds of things that we have to pay attention to. And again, the reason that that's so important is because uh, you know, we don't want the political fragility and all the myriad security situations to 
damper or or cut off the economic potential of of this area. And so that's it. You know, it's a it's an area that the United States for sure needs to be really paying attention to and watching and figuring out how to coordinate across the seams and all of that and really give it the attention that it deserves. We've been speaking with Elena Delugier, the Rubin Family Fellow in the Bernstein Program on Gulf and Energy Policy at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Elena is the author of the 2021 Presidential Transition Study, The Case for a Holistic U.S. Policy Toward the Emerging Red Sea Region. You can follow her on Twitter at Elena Gulf. That's E-L-A-N-A-G-U-L-F. Elena, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at WashInstitute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Please like and rate this podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to it to help others find Middle East Policy Cast. Thank you.